0: Hello Church, this is Austin Rovazzini and this is a Thursday Church Podcast. In today's episode, this is a sermon slash lecture I did on our gospel series on authorship and literary criticism in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We are in the middle of walking through the Gospels. And so we will continue to upload our teachings uh, as we go through this. I hope you enjoy. Epic. Well, I'm grateful to be to have my mask off now. I was heating up. <laughs> um, just so you guys know, uh, I'm a hugger, so if you come close, I'm going to take that as you're cool with physical contact. If you come close to me and you're about six feet and you stop, I will take the clue, okay? I'm trying to get red, yellow, and green wristbands so we all know where we're at, but (laughs) there's a lot of other stuff going on that's keeping that from coming down the line. So anyway, as Doug said, we're going to spend... The entire uh, night um, just focused on studying the Bible. And I know that that seems like, oh, that's what we do in every church service. But believe it or not, when you prepare a sermon, you are literally deciding what you're going to spend your time on each and every week. And sometimes you're like, I'm going to tell a five-minute introductory story on, you know, something I've learned that brings out the main point of this particular scripture that I've read and studied Myself, And I think that that's a good thing. But I also think that there's parts of allowing the scripture to be sort of read and and kind of contemplated on your own to make your own conclusions. That's really powerful, too. So one of the key things for me and my own Christian faith is I was led to reading the Bible on my own and studying the Bible on my own because I just I had a hard time trusting guys like Doug. So... (laughs) It wasn't that he wasn't, like, fun and cool. It was just that I, like, needed to see it for myself, which is ironic because now I'm here teaching the Bible. But, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. You can study. Google is alive. And also, you know, there's lots of really beautiful Bible translations that you can get, and it will give you an idea of what's going on. But all that to say, this has gotten me deep into studying um, all sorts of books and, and whatever. Um, all that to say, I'm excited to spend the majority of the time each Thursday night on just the Bible. So what we're doing is a walk through the Gospels. Two weeks ago, we read the beginning of each Gospel to say uh, they're, they're different. Each Gospel is different which brings up a whole bunch of different questions. Why are the Gospels different? Why do they need to be different? Is that because Jesus was was different? Like, is there different opinions on who he is? And is that a problem? And there's sometimes you're going to encounter issues in the Bible or in the Gospels that have to do with uh, the order in which they're laid out. Why is Jesus clearing the temple at the early part of his ministry in one Gospel and later on in a ministry, uh, you know, in another Gospel? So does, are they wrong? Were they not actually there? Like, what's, the, what's going on? So we're going to enter right into the middle of that. So that was the very beginning two weeks ago. We said each gospel is different, which is great. One thing that I'm going to continue to come back to when we're studying the Bible is that the best, the best language I've heard to understand what the gospels are doing is they weave together two main things. Story, that's the biography of Jesus, right? What did Jesus do? What did he say? What did he teach? You know that's the story part and significance, which is the theological implications of what he did, what he taught. Um, some of the things that each gospel is going to do, in the way that they're different is they're going to bring a different shade to that significance. And so what we know is that there were there were many gospels circulating at the very beginning of Jesus or at the very end of Jesus's um, sort of not the end of his ministry, but when the church is being developed and, and sort of first planted. But these four are what became the sacred texts, and that's something that we're going to continue to kind of come back to. So last week, we looked at the first four verses in Mark. Who listened to that in this room? Yeah, three, four. Okay, we'll take it. Um and what we, what we learned is that there's a lot going on in each verse. When you study the Bible verse by verse, there is so much out there now. I mean, this is 2,000 years, right, of, of commentary and study and scholarship and archaeology and things develop. So there's a lot to say about those four verses. But Mark begins, as we said in the first week, different than how Luke begins. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Mark and Luke together. And then we're going to look at Matthew and John kind of together. John is completely a whole different organism in terms of the Gospels. So when you start to line up Matthew with John, you're going to see there's some major differences here, right? Why? 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 And then same with Mark and Luke, major differences. And we're going to see that in the beginning of Luke tonight. So tonight we're going to look at the first four verses in Luke. And what we're going to do in the first four verses in Luke is we're going to listen to what it says. And then we're going to focus in on two key parts that these four verses force us to think about. Force is a harsh word. We probably should think about these two things. And then these two things also apply to every book in the Bible, but especially to the study of the Gospels. And these two things is authorship, the question of authorship. And the, the second is is what has come to be known, let's just call it uh, literary structure or literary criticism of the Gospels, which means basically, do these authors actually line up their Gospels, the verses and chapters, uh, in a way that kind of submits to a literary structure? So is there something that we can find that if there is a literary structure to it, does it teach us something about what the Gospels are trying to say to us? And when we look really hard and we compare and contrast, we do see that the authors actually have a literary eye, and it's fascinating the conclusions that we'll come to, especially in Mark. Uh, But Luke is interesting in its own way. But Mark usually gets a bad rep, so that's something we'll cover too. So uh, I'm going to read the first four verses of Luke, um, and then we'll we'll get into it. Um, I'm reading from the ESV. I like the ESV personally because it's easy to read aloud. Um, and I, I, I find the layout to be um, just a little bit easier for me. One of the things that you'll notice in these first four verses, it's a big run-on sentence. So it's kind of fun. So bear with me as I read one sentence. But it's four verses. Here we go. In as much as many That's how the gospel of Luke begins. Okay, kind of interesting, given, since some of you didn't tune in to Mark, which I totally understand. uh, Mark's gospel begins, the beginning of the gospel, it sounds a little bit more like a gospel introduction. This is Mark uh, 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, that sounds more like a good introduction to a gospel. This is a little different in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the That's literally a run-on sentence. And in Greek, like, you you see that. In, in English, we're, you can see the translators trying to figure out how do I put these first four verses together with all the commas. You could probably count the commas in there it would be an interesting study. But the point is, is that Luke's Greek is very sophisticated, very sophisticated, and he's going to use that to his advantage, which some believe uh, kind of backs up this idea that Luke was um, a physician. So two main points we're looking at when we, can, when we read those first four verses in Luke is author and literary structure, both important in the study of the Gospels. So we're going to pause in Mark, what I did is I literally looked word by word, verse by verse, and we talked about it. What does gospel mean? Why is the beginning? What does Jesus Christ mean? Why is it mean as it is written points actually backwards but not forwards? We talked about those things. Here we're going to say, okay, let's pause. Obviously, there's something going on here about authorship because this particular person here is writing from a perspective that is important to consider, which would be important to consider who that is, and then literary structure due to the fact that these first four verses are actually like a prologue. So if you keep reading in verse 5, what you'll see is it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. That kicks off the entire gospel. It just continues down that type of language. However, we have this intro or prologue uh, to the gospel. So that immediately raises the question, okay, the the, the writer is thinking about this in a way that he's disclosing his view from the very beginning, which in modern literature is a prologue. Who reads the Jesus Calling? Anybody? That's a very popular book right now. Let me read you a blurb from the introduction of the Jesus Calling, because the Jesus Calling is not scripture. It's something else. So in the prologue, they're going to disclose their purposes. This is a little blurb in the, the middle of the introduction or prologue of a, of a Jesus Calling, which is another example of, a, of the same type of intro. The Bible is the only infallible, inerrant word of God, and I endeavor to keep my writing consistent with that unchanging standard. I have written from the perspective of Jesus speaking to help readers feel more personally connected with Him. So she's disclosing her purposes when you read that. So when you read the Jesus calling, that's the major lens that she's using. She's saying, How am I going to make the language of the Bible feel personal? Because in her intro, she talks about how important to her faith and studying scripture has been to transition from these just being words to being something that's a personal conversation with God. Luke is telling us that this was something that he shaped, right? That he used the eyewitness accounts that he's relied on To shape a gospel in a way that, number one, proves its reliability. So he's concerned with its reliability, which is very important. You're going to see key names. You're going to see dates woven in Luke. You're going to see things that he's very concerned about reliability, particularly because he's not an apostle. And typically, we would say an apostle or Paul are really important in terms of reliability for these texts. And then more so, we're going to see him do things that are... Are more on the lines of, look, I want to prove, I want to, I want to shape this language in a way that's um, sort of more sophisticated than some of its counterparts, and we don't have to get into that yet. But just a couple of notes um, at the beginning: that run-on Greek sentence is insane in the Greek New Testament. When you look at it, you're just like, it just keeps going. It looks like a paragraph. So. Note on authorship as we jump around from author to author. The name of the author of the gospel according to Luke is not given in the gospel or itself. It's not given. Nor can it be derived by implication from the gospel. This is true of all four of our gospels. So, ESV, the gospel according to Luke, this has been put in at a later date. The gospel according to Luke. This was not on the original manuscript original manuscript. However, there's something to be said there. Same with these uh, uh, verses and chapters. Those have been put in to help us kind of move along. But a couple notes. However, we have no evidence that any of the Gospels circulated anonymously. Let me explain. For example, in the case of the Gospel according to Luke, all the manuscripts that contain a title at least at the beginning or at the end, which was common in uh, uh, antiquity, only include the name Luke. So for the manuscripts that we do have that have a title, Luke is included anonymously. This is important because it makes the case that the gospel did not circulate under any other name, which means that a Luke who is not an apostle was most likely its author because it would have been unlikely... For the early church to assign his name to this text if it wasn't him. Due to the fact that Matthew, in Matthew and John's case, authorship denotes direct apostle tradition. Meaning the text was accredited due to its connection to the apostles. Said differently, it would be odd to assign a non-apostle's name to a highly circulated text if it wasn't true. So we're talking thousands and thousands of manuscripts, pieces of manuscripts, fuller manuscripts that we have in our hands now that there is no ancient source that is com- comparable to the amount of manuscripts we have to the New Testament. Right? You can find like you know, 40 of another Greek literature of the same time, but you're gonna find thousands of the New Testament manuscripts. Some are just pieces of them. Well, some of those manuscripts do have a title when it comes to this gospel, anonymously, or, or the, every single one has Luke. So that's really important when thinking, okay, this is something that uh, was written um, by this person. Now, we'll, we'll take a couple other uh, points here. In Luke's case, we have three New Testament texts that point to the identity of Luke and several early church fathers' references. So we're only going to look at the New Testament references for time. Early church fathers are the, the people who are who are the first writers that are thinking of and discussing the Christian text when the church is first starting. One of the guys that you'll hear is like uh, Irenaeus. There's like a, there's a bunch of list of them. Just type in to your browser church fathers and you'll just get a whole bunch of interesting dudes. So, New Testament references. Three of them that talk about Luke. Uh, first is Colossians 4:14. 4, Luke, the beloved physician greets you as does Demas. okay uh, Philemon 1 uh, 23 and 24. My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. Second Timothy 9 uh, through verse 13. This is a very funny verse for me, and there's a bunch of names in here that are really hard to explain, so give me grace. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with the present world, (laughs) has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Thank God for Luke. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus... I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, <laughs> bring the cloak that I left with coprus at Tross, also the books, and above all the parchments. <laughs> so, those are the three New Testament references to Luke. Um, um, all three references are from Paul's prison letters, which means that Luke, this Luke he refers to, is in company with him in prison. Within Paul's entourage is, another thing we can say, is within Paul's entourage is this Luke. Luke rolls with Paul, okay? Within Luke's gospel and Acts, which we'll come to in a second, there is clear vocabulary themes and theological emph- emphasis that are undeniably, undeniably connected to Pauline literature, right? So all the Pauline letters... We're reading that, and all of a sudden we're seeing these major connections to Luke and Acts. So, so that's, that's very important, and this is why. Well, we'll continue a couple additional things, and then we'll say why. None of the sources, including the church fathers, claim Luke was an apostle or knew Jesus in the flesh, which aligns with Luke's opening statement. Basically, he was dependent on others' testimony or eyewitness experience rather than his own. However, the book of Acts is viewed as the sequel to Luke, and it's and based off of a few key points. The book of Acts is does claim to be an eyewitness account of what's happening, specifically in Paul's ministry, okay? The book of Acts connected to the book of Luke is significant. Here's a couple reasons why we think it's connected as a sequel. Both books address Theophilus. Acts refers to Luke... As, so that's one. Both books address Theophilus. So you flip over to Acts, you'll see that. Acts refers to Luke as a, as a prequel, Acts 1-1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that G- Jesus began to do and teach. Okay? Continually... This is proving this is connecting Acts to Luke. The vocabulary, vocabulary used in both books can be linked to the same author with a high degree of statistical probability, as well as themes and how the books fit together from a literary standpoint in, in regards to how uh, the book is actually lined up. If you start at Luke and you go through Luke and then you get into Acts, there seems to be a seamless sort of way, not only that they transition, but how they end. Remember, Luke is talking about Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And then Acts gets into how that plays out right after that happens. And then it takes the gospel to the end of the known world at the time, or most importantly, the sort of powerhouse, which is Rome. Acts ends in Rome. So you watch the how Jesus basically enters the world has his ministry in Jerusalem, which we'll talk about is why it's significant as we study Luke, all the way from Jerusalem to the gospel ending in the heart of Rome. It's very, that's a literary move that, that happened, yes, but the author is making it clear that this is an important thing to consider. So again, um, to me, that's, that like makes me excited. I don't know why, but. It does. So, in addition to the authorship comments, we'll be spending some time considering the importance of literary structure. Before I get there, I forgot this one point. Let me land the plane on Luke's and Acts. Most importantly, Acts is written from an eyewitness perspective, which would make Luke an early and central figure to the beginning of the spread of the gospel, that is the message of Jesus Christ. So, although he's not claiming to be an apostle, he's connected very closely to Paul, which gives him direct access to one of the the most prolific biblical author that we have, right? More words are prescribed to Paul than any other author in the New Testament and Old Testament, so we have Luke's connection there, and that's meaningful. So that's one thing on authorship. If you take that same complicated story I just talked about in Luke, every single gospel has some story like that. Every single gospel is dealing with the fact that no, that it was not, um, like, the standard to have authors write this, I wrote this, and sign their name. It wasn't, like, part of antiquity. It was just, like, not done. So, Everybody has to deal with it. It's not signed by one of these people. We have to figure out clues into why, okay, all of a sudden we have manuscripts that are saying the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to John. So each of them has their own story. So I just want to bring attention to that to say that as you study these, remember that. And I would encourage you, like, there's no way I can cover the extensive authorship question in each of these. But there are sources out there that can help you go there. So a lot of this is just bringing you awareness to that. Um, And fortunately, you know, we're going to be going through this at a pace that is relatively slow. Okay. Now let's look at literary structure. I want to talk about a general outline of Luke's literary structure to make a couple points. Because we're going to see this in all four Gospels. That that it's, it's just woven in. So here's a general outline of Luke's narrative structure. We get a prologue in verses, or in chapter 1, 1 through 4, right? We see Luke, Luke's use of prior sources, the character of the gospel, and his intentions to in- assure readers of the re- reliability of his testimony. In Luke, we get two chapters of infancy narratives of John and Jesus, so you're reading Luke, and all of a sudden you get infancy narratives around these two players in the book. That's not what we see in other Gospels. We do see, the, we do see John the Baptist in all four Gospels, but not the infancy narratives uh, like we do in Luke. The body of the Gospel begins really in Chapter 3. The, uh, it begins with a large uh, uh, interval of time from Jesus as a boy. So who knows the famous, just to check back in. You guys doing okay? Okay. Sorry, lots of it. It's going to be like this every week. I apologize. Who remembers Jesus as like a 12-year-old like in a temple? That's like a pretty famous story, right? That is the most unique story we have of Jesus. There's not there's not stories around Jesus is like what he was like at 12. That's like the a very unique story. There are gospels out there who claim to know Jesus as a young boy, he's like doing crazy miracles. He's like doing all sorts of like fun tricks that was not included as a sacred those gospels were not included as a sacred text because it seems to get away from the point really quickly. And if you read them, um, I'm blanking on, on the name on this particular one. I think it's the Gospel of Peter. There's a Gospel of Peter. Um, that's that paints that has a more drawn out story of Jesus as a boy. It gets away from the point really fast. And if you read it yourself, you would see this is extremely odd when, I, when I'm reading it next to Luke or Matthew or any of the others. So just to say that at the very end of the, the infancy narratives, there is that story of Jesus as, like a, as a boy. There is a huge time gap when chapter 3 begins, which is a signal... To us, after reading the entire Gospel of Luke, that time and place are extremely important to the narrative structure of this. So, one begins with the large interval of time from Jesus as a boy, same age as John the Baptist, because we get their birth stories right up front, to the 15th year, this is what the Gospel of Luke says, to the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Okay, that's a a huge clue into when to a date and a time. Tiberius Caesar succeeded uh, Caesar Augustus, who reigned from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. So Tiberius Caesar reigned from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D. So we know this from a historical perspective. This isn't just in Luke. That's just to say that we get a little bit of a time period there because Luke is going to use this as a key for us to kind of stay along uh, his literary structure. This would put the dawn of this section around 30 AD. The body can be broken down into the following sections. I'm not expecting you guys to, to memorize this, but I just want to touch on them because as we move forward... Or you go and study on your own, which is the main goal. There is no other goal. This is not going to be on a test. This isn't going to be a quiz. You're not gonna have to, I'm not going like to come and follow up with you on all the things I'm talking about. I want to inspire you to go back in and be like, oh, my gosh, I'm reading this book and all of this is happening? Like, are you serious? And so I think it's very fun that way. So the body can be broken down. Three, one, Okay to 4.13 is the preparation of Jesus, of Jesus for ministry. Chapter 4.14 through chapter 9.50 is the Galilean ministry. So you see Jesus sort of being prepared for his ministry. His ministry launches, and all of a sudden they start talking about the area in which all of Jesus' ministry is happening. Now, maybe said in, on its own wouldn't be significant. However, what we're going to come to see is that at 951 through 1831, we have a section that has come to be called, The Mission of Jesus and the Way of Salvation. The key being that in 951, Jesus sets his eyes towards Jerusalem. He sets his eye towards Jerusalem. The author is cueing us into something extremely important. So... Um, That entire section from 951 to 1834 consists almost entirely of teachings and parables of Jesus. Virtually no narrative context, geographical references, or place names. This section must be understood in the context of Jesus' necessity to go to Jerusalem, which is mentioned seven different times from 931 to 1831. In chapter 18, 35, again, I don't want you to remember all this, through 24, 53, the passion in Jerusalem. This is a section called the passion in Jerusalem. There is a ton of subsections in this passion, but I want to point out one as an example. Jesus approaching Jerusalem as king is probably the most potent and prominent theme of, of Luke. Jesus, so so, you, let me explain a little bit why. This particular section begins with his arrival in Jericho. So if you go to the back of your Bible, you're going to have these Bible maps. And on these Bible maps, you, you can see uh, the ministry of Jesus, typically. There will be uh, his entire ministry laid out with these events. Jericho... You're going to see is getting closer to Jerusalem, and then obviously there's going to be sort of this play to the climax coming into Jerusalem. But it begins with his arrival in Jericho. Boom! Again, place name. All of a sudden, teachings turn. There's this the turning point where you see another city introduced, 1835. Then, the then the Bethpage in Bethany. He comes to Bethpage in Bethany. Bethpage meaning House of Unripe Figs, is a place name mentioned in all three synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is probably near the summit of the Mount of Olives. Then we get the descent from the Mount of Olives in 1937, and finally to the city itself where Jerusalem weeps, or sorry, where Jesus weeps over the site of Jerusalem. That happens in 1941. And when we draw near, it says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So what's really interesting is you have this subsection where they're taking these these place names and they're bringing you into which Jesus is now in the heartland of his ministry, and that's Jerusalem. As we know, and we've been taught many times, the culmination of of Jesus' ministry, he enters into Jerusalem, he clears the temple, teaches in the temple, he's brought to trial, right? He's crucified, he gets raised from the dead, and so all that happens in Jerusalem. For Luke, the way that he understands the Old Testament, all of the prophets and all of the scriptures point to that the Messiah, the Son of God, has to, has to, it all has to happen in Jerusalem, right? It's a part of fulfilling what the Old Testament Sort of pushed forward. In Luke 24, and this is the last thing I'll say in terms of at least for tonight, because I know it's a lot, there is four different interpretations of the passion, which is Jesus' crucifixion. In all four of these, Luke is trying to make the point that he sees in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament everything culminating in Jesus. And he's written his entire gospel to point to these moments. So, let me read these for you, and then I'll land the plane. Four passion interruptions in chapter 24, Luke's resurrection chapter. In verse 7, it says, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of, this is the resurrected Jesus. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, and on the third day rise. Verse 26 was it not necessary that the, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 46, the last one, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. So, literary structure, authorship. Authorship's extremely important. Why? It it, it is the central, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we trust the text in terms of reliability. It also, which I think is more important, okay, that's like the traditional answer. I think it actually tells us more behind the scenes kind of what we can learn from the text itself. If Luke did spend as much time with Paul, then as I study Luke, I should probably at the same time be reading Paul's letters. That's very helpful. I might never have the ability or opportunity to, you know, for someone to point that out for me. But as you study Luke and you go through it, that's something that I think that that's like an insight I would take away. Literary, literary uh, um, construct, or even literary criticism. How does this book laid out in a from a literary perspective? Luke is extremely concerned with the way of Jesus. How does Jesus start from a from from an infant and end on a cross in Jerusalem? Why did he start his ministry in a town that now, if you go to to. Um, um, modern day, and blanking, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. is like a, a slum. Why did he start there and end in where the king was? Where, like, the prominent Jewish leader is? That's important to Luke, and he makes his story uh, based off of that. When we get into the other Gospels, we're going to see the same thing. Why does Matthew set up his Gospels with five major sections? Some believe it's because it's supposed to mirror the Torah, Right To say that this is the new Torah. Why does John is so concerned with miracles and then teaching? Why does he choose that? Why does he do that? So all of the Gospels are going to have that. In Mark, you're going to see something fascinating. Mark will start a story halfway through, stop a story. Tell an entire story that interprets the story he stopped, only to begin the story again right after, and it happens like nine different times. You would never notice that unless you're thinking of it from like a literary perspective. So I just wanna bring those keys as as we go forward. So let me just read you in conclusion. In conclusion, authorship and literary structure help guide us in our study of the gospels. In the case of Luke, we found that authorship is related to its history, or in other words, its reliability as a sacred text. We also learned that authorship connects the author Luke to Acts and Paul further cementing its loyalty to Jesus in our sacred New Testament canon. Furthermore, these insights into authorship bring clarity around themes and the literary construct of Luke, and therefore, by implication, for now at least, the other gospels. We see in Luke that the themes that resurface connect us to the author's message with clarity and profound insight. With clarity and insight, we come before the risen Jesus with new eyes, deeper respect, and a healthy reverence. What we take away from a study like this is this sense of connection to the past. Those who have written these texts experience the risen Jesus and live through the dawn of the bride of Christ, the church. We also leave with a sense of connection to the present, the, present, the risen Jesus who is reigning at the right hand of God the Father and the Holy Spirit who makes his presence known to man. Finally, we have a renewed sense of connection to our future where justice, peace, and prosperity will be in proper order upon the return of the risen Jesus in the day of the Lord. I hope this renewed connection to the past, present, and future will encourage you to devote personal time to reading and praying as you find comfort in the presence of the unconditional love of God displayed in the story and significance of Jesus the Messiah, our Lord and our God. Blessings to you, church, from God the Father, his son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit.